Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Book of Hebrews, chapter 4. I want to continue our look here at this second half of this second warning passage that we find here in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews. You will recall from last week's review that we're right smack dab now in the middle of this second warning passage. It began in verse 7 of chapter 3. It runs all the way through verse 13 of chapter 4. The first warning passage uh, was from chapter 2. And do you remember what that first warning passage was? It was, do not neglect your salvation. Or uh, a PR translation here, do not let your ship of life sail right on past the harbor of salvation. Do not be so caught up in your life thinking that you have all of this extra time that you miss anchoring at the harbor of salvation. Don't do that, the author of Hebrews says. That was warning number one. The second warning is about failing to enter his rest. And to make his point, the author of Hebrews focuses on Israel's experiences in the Exodus and in the wilderness wanderings in Numbers and from the second half of Psalm 95. Those are the couple places that he wants to take us. So the focus of the second half of Psalm 95, specifically verses 8 through 11, focuses on Israel's experience in the Exodus and wilderness. It focuses deeply at the reasons for the failure of the Israelites uh, in both of those situations. And the reasons that they had failed to enter his rest, the text tells us, is that they were disobedient, they did not believe God's promises, and they hardened their hearts in unbelief. And as a consequence, God said, in my wrath, you shall not enter my rest. You shall not enter my rest. And so they wandered for 40 years in that desert because of their unbelief. And an entire generation, save but the two who did believe, Joshua and Caleb, besides those two, an entire generation died in the scorching heat of the desert. And so this is a warning against an unbelieving heart. To David's listeners in Psalm 95, and to the professing believers in this little church in the book of Hebrews, and consequently to us today as well. Now, I told you last week that there are three things that the author of Hebrews wants to make sure that those who are professing believers in this little church, he wants to make sure, and up to and including today, he wants the three things he wants to make sure they get from this warning passage. The first is, what kind of rest is he talking about? What is this rest? What does it mean? Secondly, what do I need to do to be able to enter into this rest? And then uh, third, third, how do you enter it? Okay, so what is it? What do you need to enter it? And then how do you enter it? And to do that, He's going, to, he's going to break this down into six parts in these next verses, from verse 1 through verse 13. Give us six points here on how to do that. So we're going to continue our walk through the first three this morning. I gave you all six last week. First, in verse 1, he warns us about not entering his rest. 
He's giving us a warning there. Fear, he's going to talk about. The fear of not entering his rest. Then in verse 2, he's going to remind us that others before had heard the good news, but they didn't respond, and thus they did not enter his rest. And now the author, still having having not defined what rest is, all of that changes beginning in verse 3 through verse 7. He begins to explain what this rest is, and he assures us that there's still a rest that remains today. And that's what we hope to accomplish this morning with the Lord's help, of course. So let's look at verse 1 together as we refresh our memories from point 1 of the six points here from last week. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for the opportunity to open up your wonderful truth. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the way that you've challenged my heart this week, Lord, to dig deeper into this uh, difficult passage. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful truth from your word here today. Lord, that we would, uh, upon receiving it, Lord, we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Apply it to our lives in a way that would bring you honor and glory. That's our heart's desire here today, Lord, is to glorify you. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us in this hour. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's look at verse 1 and refresh our memory from last week, if you will. So the very first word we see in chapter 4, verse 1, is therefore. And every time we see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, What's the therefore, therefore? And that word therefore takes us back to all of the previous points that we covered in verses 7 through 19. Let me just give you a synopsis. Twice now, the author in this morning passage has warned them against having a disobedient, unbelieving heart. Okay? That's, he did it in verse 12. He did it in verse 18. And then, And remember the context that I gave you in the background information last week. He's writing specifically to professing Jewish believers, right? These are those who have made a profession of faith but are falling away now, falling away back to Judaism, leaving their profession of Christ as their Lord and Savior and going back to the old covenant under the law. And he's really trying to warn them about the consequences of doing that and why it's not wise to do that. Twice in this passage now, he has encouraged them to hold fast to their confession. Anchor in. Matter of fact, in chapter 6, he's going to say those very words. Anchor. It's an anchor to your soul, this wonderful truth of the gospel. So he warns them twice, verse in chapter, chapter 3, verse 6, and verse 14. And he reminds them that those who do remain, those who do hold fast, those who do anchor their soul to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are the truly partakers of Christ. They are the ones who have truly partaken of Christ. And again, I remind you that this generation that he's referencing in Psalm 95 has seen God move in ways no generation had seen before and no generation has seen since. God's physical presence, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night directing them in their journey. 
They've seen the Red Sea parted. They've seen manna fall from heaven. They've seen water gush from a rock. Amazing things that they've seen with their own eyes. And yet, this is the generation that he's referencing in Psalm 95 that did not enter his rest because they did not believe. And why not? Well, because when they faced their first bit of adversity, they provoked God, the text tells us. They tested him. They tried him. And God was angry with them. And for they did not know his ways, and they went astray in their hearts. To say that this generation were believers and just being rebellious is stretching the text a bit too far, in my opinion. They were certainly a part of Israel. But that does not mean that they all believed God and his promises. It is my view that those in this Exodus rebellion and the wilderness wanderings are very similar to these professing believers in Hebrews many generations later. That they're suffering from the same things and about to repeat the same mistakes. They were part of the people of God, Israel, but their hearts were far away from God. And so the author of Hebrews here is not describing somebody who needs to just get a better handle on experiencing God's inner calm and peace. What he's describing here is someone who needs to respond to the promises of God. Somebody who needs to believe in God and believe God's promises are true for them. Which is why he says, therefore, based upon all those that did not enter into his rest because of unbelief. Notice what he says in verse 1, what? Let us fear. Let us fear. Now, the kind of fear described here, though, is the fear of an unbeliever, right? Believers have reverential fear, right? We looked at that last week, but that's not the kind of fear he's talking about here. What should they be afraid of? Well, the text tells us that they should be afraid of that because he, his promised rest still remains, they may yet still miss it again. It's still open, but they may, they're in danger of missing entering his rest. And so the consequences of that previous generation's actions in chapter 3, verse 19, tells us they could not enter his rest because of their unbelief. They could not enter his rest. But there is a rest that still remains. And it still remains today. Now, what was the cause of that uh, unbelief? Had they not seen God's hand move in miraculous ways? Yes, they had. Did God fail at some point to deliver on his promises? No, absolutely not. God cannot lie. His promises to us are always true. Well, if they had seen God moving on their behalf, and all that he had promised he had delivered upon... What was the cause of their unbelief? Well, the answer to that we find in verse 2 in chapter 4. So let's look at that together, shall we? Verse 2. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So the first thing the author does after warning them in verse 1 about missing this opportunity to enter his rest, is to point out that just like them, the previous generation had heard good news also. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ's incarnation and his atoning work on the cross was explained to the wilderness wanderings and the Exodus generation? Well, if you're a covenant theologian, you'd like to quickly point to the, that the same Greek word for good news is used throughout the New Testament is used here to describe the Exodus generation. Euangelizio is the Greek word. It really means to evangelize. Our covenant theologian brothers like to say the word gospel here, but is that really the good news that the Old Testament folks heard here? Does it mean that they heard the gospel of Christ in the Old Testament? Well, keep your place in Hebrews here and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me, what? The mystery. What mystery is he talking about? Well, a mystery in Scripture is a previously unveiled truth. What is this previously unveiled truth that Paul is talking about? He says, uh, by reference, I'm sorry, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ's which in other generations was what? Not made known to the sorts of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring light, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was all in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul states that the gospel of Christ was a mystery, a previously hidden truth that was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. As it has now been revealed, Paul speaking in his time to the apostles and prophets through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The word gospel, if you have that in there, is really a poor translation given the Old Testament text. It really should be good news. Good news is a better translation. So if the good news that the Israelites heard in the wilderness was not about the gospel of Christ, then what was it, that the good news, that they heard? What was this message of evangelization? What was the good news they heard about? It was the good news about entering his rest. In the context here, this is the context of this entire warning passage. It's about entering his rest. But as I pointed out last week, there are many types of rests that are mentioned in Scripture. 
which is what makes that, this passage confusing to many. In fact, the word rest is repeated eight times between verse 1 and verse 13. Almost like God's trying to make a point about this rest. And it carries two very different meanings. One is literal and one is figurative. The literal meaning of rest in our passage in Hebrews, back in our passage in Hebrews chapter 4, the literal meaning is in relation to the actual physical rest in the land of Canaan, which would bring an end to their wilderness wanderings. The second type of rest is a spiritual rest. And it's in reference to our rest from the dominion of sin over us and rest from our own efforts to try and attain righteousness or God's divine favor. That's the second kind of rest. And this spiritual rest, salvation, we would call it today, is experienced here. And now we need to live out our salvation here and now. And we experience that spiritual rest eternally also for all believers. So we have an aspect where we have a spiritual rest, aspects of it we enjoy today. And then there's an eternal aspect as well. So here in verse 2 then, the author points to the physical rest that was available to the wilderness generation, the physical rest from their wanderings. And he's using it as a picture, if you will, of the spiritual rest that was available to them today. Remember, he keeps saying this again. Today, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear God's call, do not harden your hearts. Today, today, today. He's trying to say, listen, there was a rest that they were striving for in that time. But there's a rest that still remains today. So he states here that even though they heard the good news that God's rest was available, they still did not enter into it. Why not? Chapter 3, verse 19. Unbelief. There it is. What caused this unbelief? Look at the second half of verse 2. He explains it out for us. Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Although they heard the good news, it did not profit them in any way because they did not take the hearing of the good news and then unite it with their faith so that it would be profitable to them. Did you catch that? That means they heard all they needed to hear in order to be able to enter God's spiritual rest. Everything that they needed. For those in the Israelites, they needed, they had, they heard everything that they needed to hear to be able to enter into his physical rest. All they had to do was believe that what God said was true, that God is who he says he is, and that what he says is true, and that his promises are true. If they had done that, they would have entered into the promised land, just like Joshua and Caleb. And so he's trying to draw a comparison and say, why didn't they do that? My goodness, they're standing at the top of the mountain. They can see this land. Not only that, they actually sent spies to go check it out. Unbelievable. They, they heard everything they needed to hear to be able to enter God's rest, and yet they still did not enter. Why? Because they refused to believe. They chose not to believe God and his promises. It was of no profit, no gain to them at all, since they did not unite the good news 
with faith. Isn't that exactly what happened in Numbers 14 that David is talking about in Psalm 95? Isn't that what happened? God said, and this is a, this is a PR paraphrase here, here you go. The promised land is right there. Go check it out for yourselves. Here it is. You can see it right there. We've traveled all this way. It's right there. Go and see if all that I've promised you is true. Go and see if this is a land flowing with milk and honey that I had promised you. So they send 12 spies. 10 came back and said what? They're too big. There's too many of them. We can't do it. I try to have a little whiny part of my voice there. Did you catch it? All right, so God says, Have I not promised you that you will be in my rest? Have I not promised you that I would care for you? Have I not promised you that I would protect you? But they did not believe, did they? They didn't believe. They did not unite God's promise of entering his rest with their faith. They heard it but they didn't respond. Consequently, only the two spies who came back, Joshua and Caleb, that did unite their faith with God's promises, actually made it into the promised land. So the author of Hebrews is saying to the professing believers, just like those that did not enter his physical rest into the promised land because of their lack of faith in God and his promises, you too can fail to enter into his spiritual rest if you do not unite your faith with the good news found in Christ Jesus. You can suffer the same fate as they did. He then reiterates the point again in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Actually, that's, that's in the present He's speaking there at that time. We who have believed, he's speaking to the professing believers in, in Hebrew and to believers in this church. We that have believed are already in the rest, is what he's saying. We're already there. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Notice here he, he gives a positive and a ne negative. Those that believe, those who believe today, those that have united their faith to the hearing of the good news have profited immensely and have entered into his spiritual rest eternally. Here's the negative. He repeats again, not Psalm 95, verse 11. Those that do not believe today, who do not unite their faith to the good news upon hearing it, will not profit, for they will not be given access to his rest. And just like the Israelites that were not able to enter his physical rest because of their unbelief, these professing believers will not be able to enter his spiritual rest because of their unbelief. But then he adds, do you notice at the end of verse 3, he says, although his works, he's talking about God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, what does he mean by that? Why does he throw that little tidbit in there at the end of verse 3? You just told them that if they have fallen away as a professing believer and they have not united their faith to the good news, that they will not be allowed to enter his rest. So why on earth should I hold fast my confession if I've already missed my opportunity to enter into God's rest? 
Why on earth are you warning me about not missing my opportunity to enter his rest if I've already began hardening my heart against God because of the difficult things I'm facing in my life? Am I not now just like those that perished in the desert because of their disobedience? Am I not just am I not in the same group? Isn't that the point of your story? Isn't that why you're pointing that out? No. No, it's not, the author of Hebrews says. All is not without hope. And he wants to make a very important point about God's spiritual rest, beginning in verse 4. For he has said somewhere, as if he didn't know, somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. The reason that the Israelites did not enter his rest the author of Hebrews is saying, was not because it was not available. It was available to them. And the end of verse 3 tells us, for his works were finished from the foundations of the world. Now to prove it, he takes them all the way back to the book of Genesis. So keep your place in Hebrews. Go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. He says, By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Why did God rest on the seventh day? He certainly didn't need physical rest. Amen? I mean, God, God is omnipotent, He is all powerful. There is never a time when he had less power. There's never a time we'll have more power. He is all-powerful. He doesn't wane in his attributes. He doesn't wane in his very essence. He doesn't need physical rest like we do. This was done for whom? It was done for us. It's an example for us. One in which we are to model after God's example in creation. Later, in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, it became part of the law, did it not? He commanded that it would be done. And then later, in verse 8 of Exodus 20, he set it aside for worship in the Mosaic Law. He called it holy, or consecrated, or a day set aside for the Lord. But this day of physical rest and worship was always for man, not for God. In fact, Jesus tells the Pharisees who were critical of the ministry that Jesus was doing on the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for whom? For man. But back in our text here in Hebrews chapter 4, the author used this example for a very specific reason, didn't he? What is the point here that he's trying to make? He's trying to demonstrate this very important point, that God's rest has always been available to those in every generation that would unite their faith with belief in God and his promises, that it's still there. Even from the very beginning, God's rest in creation was pointing to a spiritual rest that could be found in God through faith. Even then, from the foundation of the world, God was offering his rest. Now stay with me as we walk through these last couple of verses. I know it gets a little tricky. We keep talking about all these different kinds of rests, bouncing back and forth. 
But I believe the author of Hebrews here is demonstrating is that this rest has been available since the beginning of creation all the way through today. And he's going to emphasize this point by showing four different time periods that it's already been available. So look at verse 5 in chapter 4. He says, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So he was just in Genesis and said, hey, God's rest was available to them then. It was a physical rest, but it was pointing to a spiritual rest. Now he goes to Psalm 95, which was written in David's time. So he leaps forward in time, and he goes to Psalm 95, which would have been, well, the Israelites heard it in David's reign. So the author is saying, listen, the rest was available from creation. It's also available to the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, and it's available to those, again, who heard it in David's time. And verse 3 tells us that it's available today to those professing believers who were hearing it in the book of Hebrews. Which brings us to his summary of verses 1 through 5 in verse 6. Y'all are amazed we're covering this many verses, aren't you? I can see the look on your face. You're absolutely stunned by this. Verse 6, look at this. Therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? All what he's talked about in verses 1 through 5, he's kind of putting a little capstone in what everything we've covered. He says this, God's, since God's, therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So he says, listen, since God's rest is still available today to enter into it, just like it hasn't been available, just like it's been available since creation, just like before this message, this good news has been evangelized since creation. And it's been made available to man from the garden to Exodus, during David's reign, during the first century in the book of Hebrews, and available today as well. But this offer is only profitable to those who unite the hearing of this good news with their faith. Faith is the key to being able to enter into his rest. Into his rest. Faith in what? Faith in God and his promises. It was by faith in God and his promise that Adam and Eve could have remained in his rest. Had they believed, they would have remained in his perfect rest. It was by faith that the Israelites could have entered the promised land and enjoyed God's rest if they would have only believed in God and his promises. It was by faith that God's rest was available in David's reign, still, generations later. It was by faith that it's available to these professing believers in Hebrews. And in each case, through human history, only those who heard the good news and united it with their faith were the only ones who were able to enter into his rest. And those who did not unite the good news with faith are called what in verse 5? Disobedient. Disobedient. Now, why? Why disobedient? Because they refused to believe God and chose and said, instead to go astray in their own hearts. They did not know his ways because they had decided that their own path was far better than the path that God had laid out for them. God said, believe me, trust me, I will protect you, I will care for you, and if you will just put your faith in me, I will deliver you to the promised land. And they said, you know, I got a better plan. How about I not do all of that? I like the idea of getting in the promised land. 
But I've got a few things that I would like to continue to do that you have really strictly said are taboo. I shouldn't be doing them. So how about if I say that I would like to join you, but I do it my way? How about that? To which God says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You see, they did not know his ways because they decided their own path was a far better path. Disobedience here is not simply that they didn't accomplish some act that was required of them. No, disobedience here is tied to their unbelief. You realize that the gospel is a command, not a suggestion, right? It's a command in Scripture. It's an imperative. It's, it's a command. You are told to believe. In other words, they disobeyed God's promise of hope and rest because of their unbelief. Because the commandment was, trust me, have faith in me, I will deliver you. They disobeyed God's command and said, I won't believe. I got a better plan. I'm going to do it my way. Which is why the author of Hebrews closes out his his admonition with a plea to once again respond in faith. Look at verse 7. He again fixes a certain day. What is the day that you need to respond? What is the day that you need to unite your faith when you hear the good news, when God is calling you through the preaching and teaching of the good news? It's right here in our scripture. It's been repeated many, many times already in this morning. What is the day? When is it when you are to unite with your faith the hearing of the gospel? What day? Today is the day to respond in faith to the good news. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to drive here with his point. Do not harden your hearts like so many have done from creation all the way through today. Do not harden your hearts when you hear his voice. How do you hear his voice? Through the preaching and teaching of his word, the reading of the gospel. God speaks to you through that. What should we do when we hear this good news from his word? Unite it with our faith and respond in obedience to his call, just as it has always been. There are no two ways to salvation. You are justified. You are saved by grace through faith. That's not of your own. It's not of your own. Whether it was faith in God's promises in the garden, faith in God's promises to enter his rest into the promised land, faith in God's promises in the coming Messiah, we have always been saved, always have entered into a spiritual rest by faith in God and his promises. And we, just like these professing believers in Hebrews, who are now on this side of the cross, we have a fuller picture, do we not? of what God's rest really means. We, on this side of the cross, we're looking back at Christ and his atoning work, and we understand about God's eternal rest. We understand that he would send his son, right? He, the incarnate, in flesh, and he would willfully choose. God, the second person of God, would willfully choose to put on human flesh and to die on the cross for our sins, for all those who have faith in him. All of those who believe God and his promises. So we have a much fuller picture. And yet the means, the way to enter into his rest has not changed since the garden. 
Isn't that amazing? Still the same. We can only enter his rest by faith. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 11 for just a second. I just want to show you. might be a while before we get there, so I just want to give you a little sneak peek here. What is this faith that he's talking about? What is faith? Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, I know I can't touch it or feel it. It's not an empirical thing. It's not something that I can measure. But I know with every fiber of my body that I'm a child of the king. And I know that Christ came here and put on flesh and died on that cross for me. And I put my faith and trust, I put my eternal soul on that truth. And I believe it with every fiber in my body. That's faith. I can't see it or touch it, but I know that it's true. In fact, the entire chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith, and it gives us lots of examples. Why is faith so important? Look at Hebrews 11, verse 6. Why is this? Because without faith, it is impossible. Not improbable, not not likely. It is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And then the rest of chapter 11 is all about these pillars all through Scripture who did exactly that, who believed God, even though there was no physical evidence, no material thing for them to put their faith and trust in. How about Noah? How'd you like to be a preacher of righteousness for 120 years and the only people saved are the, God saves the members of your family. You're preaching every day for 120 years. Nobody cares. Nobody listens. Don't even know what rain is. You're building this big wooden thing in the middle, cutting down trees. And yet, and yet by faith, Noah's listed in this hall of faith. Beloved, the author of Hebrews here. The author of Hebrews, through the work of his Holy Spirit, is telling those who have made a profession of faith but not truly surrendered their faith to Christ. And by way of application, he's saying that same thing to us today. If you think you can enter into God's rest, if you think you can enter into the spiritual rest, you think you can be saved in any other way then by faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, you are missing his rest. That's the warning. There is no other way. The professing believers were demonstrating that by returning to the old covenant of works, weren't they? They had not truly bought in. They had not truly surrendered, had not truly lived out their faith. And many today, sadly, think the same thing. But the text tells us again and again, if you have faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, you have entered his rest. And here's the best part. Nothing can ever change that. Isn't that wonderful? God's there in my hand. Nothing can pluck them out. Nothing can take them out. If you are a true believer in Christ, you will enjoy his rest for how long? Forever. That is good news. Nothing can change it. How do we know that we've entered his rest? Chapters 3 and chapters 4 of Hebrews, they've been demonstrating this again and again, that those that remain in the faith 
of his promise. Those who live their lives in obedience to Christ are already in his rest. They are a part of God's household as demonstrated by the way they live their life. The fruits of their life. They're not saved by their works, but their works are a demonstration of their faith. They're the natural outpouring of their faith. In contrast, those who harden their hearts in unbelief, who do not unite the hearing of the good news with their faith, are in disobedience to God, and they are missing God's rest. They have a false hope in their own self-righteousness, their own standard being declared righteous before God. They have their own standard, their own means that they've come up with as how God will declare them not guilty. Incidentally, God calls that kind of righteousness as a filthy rags. The thought that we could come up with our own standard and bypass God's standard for righteousness is repulsive to God. So they have a false hope in their own self-righteousness as a means to enter his rest, which is why so many will hear these words from Jesus that we looked at last week. Turn one more time to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to close here. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. These are people who have claimed to be believers. These are people who are professing believers. They're doing works in his name. They're prophesying, they're teaching, they're casting out demons, it says. Look at here. Verse 21, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they're calling him Lord and Master, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them some of the worst words ever to be uttered in Scripture from Christ himself. He says what? Depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those are scary words in Scripture. Those are words I hope nobody here in this room ever hears. My friends, what are you trusting in to enter into his rest? Are you trusting in your own works? Do you have your own set-aside standard by which you think you'll be able to enter into heaven? Is it your own works? Have you done a lot of good things in your life? Can you think of a whole list of people who are a lot worse off than you? Is that your standard? Is that what you think will get you into heaven? Because these people were doing some mighty works here in Matthew 7, weren't they? Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. Not that he didn't know of them. He knows all things. It means I never knew you like a father knows a son, like a parent knows a child. I never knew you that way. Like a husband knows a wife and a wife knows a husband. He says, I've never known you that way. I've never known you. I know of you, but you're not part of my family. Depart from me. Do you believe that God must let you enter his rest because you've self-determined by your own standard that you're a really good person? Because if that's what you're relying on to be able to get into heaven, my friends, you're going to hear those words in Matthew 7 because there is no other way. That's a hard truth, isn't it? But that is a truth you need to hear. And I say that lovingly. You need to understand that. 
Beloved, it is faith in Christ and Christ alone that makes you alive and gives the sure hope of entering into God's rest. That's it. There is no other way. Won't you consider today that while his rest remains open, surrendering your life to Christ? Won't you consider that today? I beg you. I plead you. Do you believe God? And do you believe that his promises are true? While his rest remains open today, will you enter his rest by faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross? Do not harden your hearts if you hear the Lord calling you. Instead, respond today. Respond in faith. Repent of your sins and surrender it all to him and enter his rest. Let's close our eyes. Heads down. Father, if there's one in our midst here today that you are calling and drawing to yourself, I pray, Lord, today that they would respond in obedience, that they would not have an unbelieving heart, that they would not have determined some other way that they think they're going to get into heaven apart from the truth of your word. Father, I pray that they would respond in obedience today as your word tells us, today they would do that. That they wouldn't presume upon your grace and think, well, I have tomorrow. I've got time. I'm young. I've got plenty of time. I'm in good health. Because even the last breath they took is simply by your grace. I pray that they would not presume upon your grace any further, but instead surrender today. If you're here today, brothers and sisters, if you're here today, and you're not absolutely sure of your salvation, I pray that you would stick around. Stay a little bit after the service. Speak to one of the elders. Do not let another day go by without having absolute assurance of your faith. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the hard truth of your word. These are difficult words for all of us because we have to search the very core of our being, Father, and that's difficult. We don't like to do that very often. But your word, Lord, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, if there are pierced hearts and souls here today, that they would respond to you. Thank you, Lord, again for your wonderful truth and the good news of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, shall we?